What's up, Redemption Church? I'll tell you what's up, man. Brand new series. We are looking at Sunday school, but it's unfiltered, man. So we're taking those ever familiar stories, but we're going to kind of tell them in maybe ways that you're like, hey, that is unfamiliar to me. And that should be a really great journey. Now, some of this, you're going to hear the stories. You're going to be like, I know that one. That's easy. I've heard that before. But today, today, today. All right. Today is going to be looking at a story where you think you know it, and even you think you know what it's communicating. But when we do a deep dive into it, you're going to be like, oh, I didn't know some of those things about that story. So it's going to be kind of illuminating. And if anything, I'm going to warn you in advance, if this is all about Sunday school stories, today is going to lean heavily into the school side of Sunday School Stories, because we're not simply looking at the first page of the Bible, we're not simply looking at the first kind of chapter of the Bible, the first story of the Bible, but it's this infamous thing that starts with the very first words of the Bible, the first sentence that says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, the story of creation is our story today. And if you port this into um, just old school kids Sunday school, that day is an awesome day. Like, that's super fun for kids, right? Especially when you get, like, to the craft time and the artsy time. For example, uh, I found this uh, photo of kind of a coloring page. And this is cool because you get, like, seven different coloring things to do on that day. So I downloaded it, and I'm like, this is so unbiblical. And here's why. I mean, just take a look really quick. The first one should be obvious if you're reading. How many days of creation Uh, you should never write kids curriculum and Chardonnay at the same time because you'll do a typo and make two day sixes, all right? So I'm like going, okay, this goes out to churches everywhere and this gets published and they haven't picked this up yet. I'm like, this is already crazy, all right? So, but then the other thing on the other day six, we'll call it day six A, uh, here's a sweet girl uh, playing with a bunny, which is awesome because on day six, it's the creation of the animals and the human race and everything else. But you'll notice she's wearing a shirt, and I'm like, they started out naked, which I know in curriculum for kids is risky, like, you, you know, but it's just not in the Bible. Uh, let's see another one that was in here. Oh, day one. Day one is the, the creation of kind of like day and night, but it's not till day four that you have stars, but they put stars in day one instead of stars in day four. And I get the science of that is a little wonky for us. But all of this, I look at it, I go, the biggest problem of all is like day six, when it gets to God's rest, they decided to double down on God taking a nap of all things. Like, he's just sawing logs and sending Z's into the air and everything else. So while I love the attempt, uh, it's something like this that I realize that sometimes we're, we're kind of just taught certain things, we assume certain things on the text, and at a kid level, it's fine. But as you become an adult, uh, then this story confronts you at different levels. It, it goes from kind of being the fun color book story to then having some complexity. And your thoughts and your perceptions and your beliefs even get a little challenged, right? Where it's like, is it science or is it Bible? Is it creation or is it evolution? Is it a literal six days of creating the cosmos or 13.8 billion years of unfolding? Like, what's the thing? How do I lean in this? How do I solve the problem? It creates a lot of tension points for us all. But here's the good news. Today, I am here to clean all of that up for you. And by the end of the day, we will all be on the exact same page. We will believe the exact same things. We will all understand this in the exact precise way that God intended for everybody. Wouldn't that be nice? Right. 
So I give you warning in advance uh, that I am giving a way of looking at this. It is not the way, the only way. It is one of a handful of ways, but it is a way that uh, I came in contact with probably two decades ago. And when I did, it was nice because it lets me still take the chapter at face value. You don't have to do a lot of wonky stuff in one sense. But in another sense, it doesn't require me to check my brain at the door. In fact, if anything, it requires me to check my brain in the text and really try to understand all that is going on and what God is seeking to communicate. But communicate not to me, but rather what God was communicating to them and then how I can understand that. And that's a pretty critical difference in this whole discussion, right? Because here's the thing about this passage, and I'm just going to let you know up front, this section of the Bible is incredibly foreign. And how you're going to hear it today is going to feel foreign, but the reason is because in every sense, it is legitimately a foreign thing. Think about it. This is a story that dates back 3,000 years ago. The actual kind of, quote, genesis of it is further, but this is written by Moses as the Israelites are leaving Egypt, and so this is a 3,000-year-old thing. Add to it the fact that it is a group of people leaving slavery and going into freedom. They didn't have any written theological document. There was no Bible for them. This is their first Bible, and so they're going from ignorance to knowledge about things at the level that they understand their world. Then layer into the fact that it is in the Hebrew language, but the Hebrew language of the original text is kind of a dead Hebrew language. It's why many times in scholarship, they just acknowledge there's certain Hebrew words. We're not positive what they mean. We're doing our best with this handed down etymology, uh, but we're not positive in all of that. So that makes it a little bit foreign. And then you lace into all of that, that the way they saw their universe, their world, their gods, uh, nature and creation, that is completely different than the way we see the world today. And so their worldviews and understandings were just different. And so to really honestly go, what was God saying to the Israelites 3,000 years ago in the desert? You have to climb into their sandals, right? And, and, and try to see this text from their point of view. Not ours, because we want Genesis 1 to answer our post-enlightenment, uh, scientific, evolutionary debate questions. But this was given to a community, it's like, what? They wouldn't know any of that. It would just be like gibberish to them. And so we have to, again, climb into their sandals and try to understand what they're talking about, which is then, when we do it that way, kind of interesting. Technical, but interesting. So, with that, I'm going to let you know that we have an app. In the app, there are notes today. There are way too many notes. But that's just because I put a lot of, like, the, the interesting details that we're going to hit today just kind of going as fast as we can in there so you can have them at your disposal. Feel free to take notes as you want to go along. But with that, I'm going to pray for us today. Get ready as we go into a familiar Sunday School story that's a little bit deep as we do it. So Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you that we are engaging in a type of Sunday school. And the whole heart of this is not simply to be intellectual, to be informed about data points, to be more theologically minded, but I hope by the end of it, we see the great value you have toward us, the love you have toward us, the desire you have for us to know you and walk with you, have a relationship with you that brings transformation to the world. And so teach us these stories today, again, not just so we can have more stuff in our head, but rather so we can have more of a sense of heart toward you. And so Jesus, we thank you, we praise you, and we worship you this day in your good and perfect name. Amen. All right. So uh, one of the things I realized I needed to do this morning to start things off is to get us to divorce ourselves from ourselves, which seems strange. 
but we are products of our environment. We can't help but see the world in a certain way because we were educated in a certain time and place. We have these different lenses that we use to kind of understand things, and that makes us a very modern people. But this story is a very ancient story. And so if you're taking notes, the first point in your notes this morning is Genesis 1. We need to see it and hear it and interact with it as the first listeners would have heard it. Right? We have to approach it very, very differently. And again, this is a group of enslaved Israelites that saw the world in a certain kind of lens optic kind of thing, right? And so I'm like, how can I get us to do that? And so I thought, I've got the perfect tool. I've got a prop. All right, so I'm going to bring this out. And if you're not excited about this, we're going to have a conversation. So if you're just like looking at it and like, oh, that's nice, uh, you're going to have to move to North Korea. So... Because it's the American flag! Yeah! Woo! All right, so this is going to be my prop of the day right now. And a uh, quick story. This flag is actually the flag that was presented to my family when my great-uncle was in World War II. He was a, like a gunner on a B-25. They made their run. They were coming across the English Channel, and they finally went down. He passed away in that. And so this was the flag presented to the family. It hung in the family's kind of living room for a long time. And now I'm the very honored to be able to have this uh, kind of in my part of the family now. But all great things. Here's what I bet none of you thought. Aluminum pole plastic, cotton, made in Midwest someplace, probably took 45 minutes, right? In other words, you don't look at the flag and you go, here's its material things, here's how long it took to make, here is its construction, right? We don't look at it that way. We look at it very symbolically, freedom, liberty, justice, things of that nature, and that gets you thinking like an Israelite now. Because when the Israelites are hearing Genesis chapter 1, and they're hearing sun, moon, stars, cattle, land, sea, they're not thinking like we tend to, which is material. The, the sun is gas, and the moon is rock and dust, and rivers are just water, and the ocean is just sea. Like, they thought about all of this so radically different that when we look at Genesis 1, then we have to understand how they see the symbolism, much like us looking at this flag as symbol more than material more than stuff, more than the how it was made, it's why it exists. That's kind of the space that they inhabit, right? And that's the thing that we want to understand. And so we're transitioning our minds a little bit to go, all right, this was originally given to a people that are so front-loaded with all the stuff of Genesis 1, kind of before Genesis 1 is written, that then when God is speaking to them, he's using all this familiar stuff but then he's sort of reorienting it in unfamiliar ways. Therefore, because of that's why I'm going to keep saying uh, Genesis 1 is not equipped to answer our questions, but it was really equipped to answer their questions. Now, to jump into this a little bit, I'll give you something that if you get interested in this and you go, I want to know more, here's a couple of books that you could uh, read. I think there's a slide there. All right, so the easy version is right there, The Lost World of Genesis 1. The hard version is Genesis 1 is ancient cosmology. You can tell by the titles. It already lets you know, easy and hard. Uh, but same guy out of Wheaton College, which is kind of the premier evangelical seminary. It's kind of like the Yale of evangelical seminaries. But, but he's done a great job of kind of looking at some of this stuff, and, and others have really built on it, because what's happened in the last several years is we've done something really cool as a race. We've been digging stuff up, all right? 
And as we dig more stuff up in the Middle East, we get a better sense of the world that they lived in in the ancient world. And therefore, we understand the way they were perceiving the world, their worldview. And when we do that, we suddenly go, wow, there's a lot of things in that area during that same period of time and before the biblical time where the terminology is similar, the icons are similar, what you see in Genesis you see elsewhere in different ways, and maybe that gives us a sense of how God was using their environment to give them some new perspectives on things. And so that's kind of the heart behind this whole thing as we look today. It's kind of saying, you know what? Uh, it's gonna inform our understanding about their understanding. And so when we do that and we see some of the things that have been dug up and some of the things that kind of maybe informed the ancient Israelites before God gave them Genesis, what we see is a series of circulating creation stories. Right, so we have a list of things right here. These are all different regions around them that had different ideas about like how the world was created. And, and when you dig into some of these, the first thing you have to understand is that they predate Moses. So this isn't like uh, they stole from Moses. No, God has Moses utilizing these. God is speaking to Moses, kind of tapping into some of these. And so that they would go like, this is similar, but then it's also radically different at the same time. So let me just give you a few examples of this. So we're just gonna kind of go lightning round with this. But you have the Babylonian creation story. And in that story, you will see where the heavens and the earth are, are kind of crafted in a certain sort of way that sounds similar to Genesis. So it even has some language as it opens that sounds similar when it says, the heavens above did not exist and the earth beneath had not come into being, and then it's created. Very similar to Genesis. Or we see that Marduk, the kind of the primary god in this, he actually creates the stars to do days and seasons. The constellations are set for time. And even order is brought out of chaos, which is the way it kind of starts off. In the beginning was the word, or in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. It was formless and void. That's an idea of kind of chaos, and then he brings order over the next series of days. So, similar. You also have the Sumerians, and they had certain ideas. They thought that humanity was made with clay being mixed with blood in the spit of a god to create humanity. Made these lumps, broke the two lumps into equal things of seven lumps, seven for men, seven for women, but it's very similar to God making Adam from the dust of the earth. There's similarity. We also see in their epic storytelling that there was a flood, and from the flood there was the series of events very similar to what we're going to see in Genesis 6 through 9. And so, again, this is kind of the air that all these cultures are breathing. Or you get into the Egyptian creation stories, right? There you see where there was these primordial waters where like the spirit was over the, the deep waters in Genesis. Well, the spirit was over the primordial waters in their story, right? And this is where all things come from is this chaos and order kind of concept. And so there's these things that, that is, is we keep digging stuff up. We're like, wow, this, this sounds like that. This is familiar to that. This is reminiscent of that. Now I want to be clear, there's also tons of differences, right? Tons of differences. But here's the idea we're trying to get at. It's not to say, oh, so the Bible plagiarizes these stories. No. What it's saying is the Bible is repurposing these stories. We call this in scholarship contextualization, right? Fancy word, which means God's like, you know what? I should just use the analogy with them because I'll get to ends a lot faster. Like if I try to go right from the get-go explaining everything in its uniqueness, it'll take forever, especially with a majority of people that cannot read. They are not going to have their own documents to read at home to try to kind of figure this out. He's like, I'm going to use the most basic storytelling, using things that they know, but then suddenly telling them something they had no clue about as I tell the story. That's the heart behind the whole thing. And so what you need to know that's kind of behind the scenes 
of Genesis chapter 1, the working theology uh, that's kind of unifying all these different cultures that Israel is in the center of or has been enslaved by for hundreds of years is things like there was these primordial waters as the source of the first gods. So there was this chaotic ocean or sea and the first gods would emerge from that. And then these gods would end up getting kind of in fights. And there was this word separation that was used a lot. And so one god would kill another god and grab it and separate its carcass. And in the separating of the carcass, one half becomes the earth and the other half becomes the heavens. Or one becomes the land and the other becomes a portion of the seas or the rivers. So this idea of separating out of violence and hatred was a part of the stuff of the gods that even the Israelites would have understood. From this, we also see the creation is this idea of going from chaos to order, but violence is the driver behind all of that. It's, of course, a polytheistic system where there are several contending deities jockeying for power. Based on this, I said it earlier, the sun's a god, the moon's a god, right? The sea is the birthing place and incubator of the gods. This is their perception of things. Thus, the seasons exist. Why? So people can cultivate and work the land to give sacrifices to the gods. And because of that, human beings are not great, not good, not loved by the gods. They're just the slaves of the gods. They're just used by the gods. And the gods, in fact, are angry at humans because they keep procreating and they're sick and tired of it. Right? So this is then the framework. This is the accepted and expected norm. That's the air they're all breathing. And if you especially think about the Egyptian background, man, the Jews are well accustomed to this. I repeat, the Jews had no Bible. They had no seeming working theology up to this point. All they knew is we have a father. His name's Abraham. He has some God. It's been handed down to us. We're his chosen. But they don't know anything else. There's nothing that lets us know they have any working knowledge of anything other than we have this God of Abraham and we're his chosen people. And that's all they know. But they've spent hundreds of years in Egypt, and what have they been doing? They've been building grain silos and working the land and building temples and all this stuff. In other words, all the architecture of Israel's uh, kind of religious environment, the Jews have been working on that. And from that, man, they're well uh, kind of accustomed to the religious system of Israel, the gods of Israel. And to some degree, Israel kind of believes in those gods too. You see it throughout their history. They will continue to go back to the false gods and false idols all the time. Right? They're hardly like a monotheistic people. They are very polytheistic. They're like, we like Yahweh and like these 15 other things too. And then God has to spank them and they pull them in again. And God spanks them, they pull them in again. Why? Because they are so saturated in this particular water and world and, and, and way of thinking. You know, it's just the place that they swim in. And then Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 is designed to undo through similarity those things. Now, but before we kind of dive into this whole idea of dealing with the similarity but different, I want to give you one more picture here. And this is actually the way they saw the world. This is their cosmology, if you will. So, you know, we see it as like, hey, we're, there's the sun at the center of our solar system. We orbit that. That's in a bigger spiral galaxy. There's tons of galaxies. Like, we see the world different. For them, the world was like this. The world was kind of a flat disk. There was waters below and waters above, and then there was a sky in between and a solid dome that separated the waters above from the waters below. And Sheol was literally a place under the earth somewhere, right? And there was literally foundations that held up the dome, and the water for rain came from the far side of the sun and the moon, right? And it came through these little openings in the dome. Like, this is just the way they saw the world. And God's not stepping in to try to fix all of that, because he's like, that's not important. I will work with what you think. So when they're hearing these stories, they're thinking of that kind of cosmos for them. 
That's just kind of their understanding. This is going to be as simple as we can put it. But then he's going to step in and say, now can I tell you how this plays so different and what you most need to know? So in light of all that reality, we go into this next thing in your notes. It's kind of the first point that God's going to make with Genesis, right? And that is that Genesis 1 is a radical theological illumination that is contrast against the pagan background Israel knew and realistically held up to that point. I know that's a mouthful. Like, I get it. But that's what Genesis 1 is seeking to do. You've thought it's this way. You've believed in these gods. You've had these systems. You assume these things. I'm going to use all of that and blow your mind. That's what God's doing here. And it starts at the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, in the old systems that they had all kind of believed, the gods were born out of the waters. So the waters existed before the gods. Here, this god's like, ah, you know that whole thing? No, I was before all of that, and I was over the waters. And so like, wow, this is a change. This is an inversion, right? Then on top of that, kind of bringing order from chaos, all the other gods would fight each other, like I said, tear each other apart, create things out of their body parts and pieces. It's so bizarre. And God's like, that's not how I did it. There's no other gods in the scene. There's no competing. There's no fighting. No, what the Israelites are going to hear just at the get-go is there's only one God, right? So different than what they would think. And this God exists before the incubator of the gods. He's over what you think is a divine incubator. And because he's over it, it means he rules over it. He controls it. He dominates that space. And so for an Israelite hearing this for the first time, they're like, our God is supreme? Our God is like eternal? Say what? They've been looking at each other going, did you think? No, this is just so different than what we would assume, right? On top of this, there was that word separated we talked about. And separated had a very particular kind of understanding in the other surrounding things. It was this battle royale between the gods. So this god would fight that god, this god dies, he tears him in two, flings him in heaven and earth, and got the heavens and the earth, right? But now we have this god co-opting a word associated with the creation done by other gods, and he uses it in a really beautiful way. We see in verse 4, God separated the light from the darkness. In verse 7, he separated the waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens. In verses 14 and 18, he separates the lights in the sky, and he separates night from darkness. Suddenly, it's this very rhythmic, calm, like nonviolent usage of a word that was very violent. They're like, well, we're used to all the ugly separation. It's just kind of like a Quentin Tarantino movie over there to make the world and the universe. And now it's like, no, no, our God just, just does things in a very calm way. Then it goes on. We see that then God said. So on each of the six days, he speaks. And then on the third day, he speaks, or on the sixth day, rather, he speaks three different times. He said, he said, he said. But the beauty of this is that order and, and, and symmetry and, and kind of the dedication of things is just calm. It's our God just says a thing. Right? So there's no wars, there's no violence, there's no chaos. And everything he says are, are not the creation of rival gods. It's just things that are designed for his glory. So the sun isn't a god and the moon's not a god. He just tells it what to do and it does it. They're like, whoa, no way. Our God has that kind of control. Say what? It's their heart. He just speaks and it works. 
See, this is a reorientation of everything that they'd ever understood. And then it gets to the intention of it all, right? We see throughout the days that God saw that what he had done, it was good, or on the sixth day, it was very good. The only day that isn't pronounced good is day two. Why? Don't know. Above my pay grade. I don't know. But it's not given that. But again, for a worldview in which you thought everything that was created was through violence and strife and selfishness, and humans are slaves of the gods, which we'll get into that at the end of this whole thing. Um, this is mind-boggling. Like, suddenly, the Israelites are like, our God is just not like any other God. He's just not like them. He doesn't do businesses. They do them. He didn't form up things as we've understood them to be formed up, all the way down to the fact that, again, humans were despised by the gods, unloved by the gods, but this God's like, no, you're my image bearers. And on the day I made you, oh, that was a good day. That was very, very good. Like, our God loves us, likes us, cares for us, calls us good, made us his image bearers. Say what? Like, repeatedly, this would be the thing. It's, like, shocking to them. Like, they wouldn't even dreamed up any of this, but it's still familiar things said in unfamiliar ways to teach them a new thing. The very same thing actually happens in the New Testament, time and, and space. Like, if you were to enter that world before Jesus comes onto the scene, you would hear of the Lord, the Christ, the Son of God. But the Lord, the Christ, the Son of God was Caesar. Those words were attributed to Caesar. And then Jesus comes onto the scene, and those words get co-opted. And he is the Lord, the Christ, the Son of God. And the point is not to say, oh, so the New Testament writers, they're just stealing and plagiarizing from their world. No, God again loves to do this. He loves to take the familiar and then flip it on its axis and say, you want to see a real Christ, a real Lord, the real Son of God? Look here, unlike that Christ, that Lord, the Son of God, it's like black and white, day and night difference. The verbiage is the same. Frameworks are similar, meaning so, so different. And that's exactly what Genesis is undertaking. Frameworks are similar, meaning is radically different. And so that's kind of one layer that we can look at the text, right? From this ancient point of view. But the second kind of comes down to something that people have noticed before when they read it, which is there's a sense of cadence and rhythm and rhyme and almost poetry to it, right? That kind of unfolds in the text. And I think that's by design. And this has been one of the most profound things that have come out kind of in recent scholarship around all of this, right? But it's this idea that Genesis 1 is a cosmic temple consecration ceremony, right? Related to why God established the universe as opposed to how he invented it. So again, using our analogy, it's, you know, like less about like, oh, it's cotton, it's aluminum, it's plastic, it's wood, it's, you know, it's, it's sewn, it's cloth, cotton. It's, it's, not, it's not about that. It's about why we decided to make an American flag, why we give it when somebody is killed in battle in some capacity. That's kind of the art behind this whole thing. And so in the same way, when you read Genesis, it kind of mirrors this thing that the Israelites are familiar with. In fact, to give you a parallel in the Bible itself, it's in 1 Kings chapter 8. And it's the uh, consecration of the temple that Solomon builds. builds. 
So in 1 Kings chapter 6, we see that the temple is being constructed. And from a material point of view, like how and how long, it took seven years to build. Actually, it took even longer to stock up the materials and wait for the time to do the thing. So the how question is that. But the why comes up then in chapter 8. And the why is then this prayer that Solomon gives to consecrate the temple or consecrate the building. So in this sense, just to kind of close a gap here a little bit, this can mean you can look at Genesis chapter 1 and you can read those days and they're days. We don't have to get into what's the Hebrew word yom and is it epochs of time or is it... You can simply say, hey, it's days because it's not trying to talk about how or how long he took to make the cosmos. It's talking about why he made the cosmos. And at the end of whatever process God set in motion, at the end of that process, there's a time to then take time out to consecrate, to set it as worthy and ready and declared in that regard. It's like our own building down on 203, the hub, right? It's taken, actually, I think it's seven years, go figure, um, to do this process, right? So that's how long, and then there's the how, concrete and lumber and steel and everything else. But when it's finally finished, like in mid to late February, early March, whatever it is, we're gonna go down there and we're gonna have like a service that dedicates this to God. We're saying, God, use this place. This is why we built it. Who cares about how? How's interesting? How's fascinating? How long? For the curious, great. But the why of that building is why it's being done. And in the same regard, Genesis 1, then it's why is more important than it's how or how long. And so with the lightning round, to kind of see if this is a temple consecration ceremony, we start at the beginning. God said, let there be. Light separated from dark, that's day one. Waters above separated from waters below, day two. Land separated from the sea with reproducing vegetation, that's day three. So in the first three days of consecration, God's like, I consecrate that, I consecrate that, I consecrate that, right? It's just kind of working through this little system. Now again, I don't know why day two gets left out on being good, but I'm sure it's good nonetheless. Then he goes into the next three days. Then God said, let there be sun and moon and stars for making seasons and lighting the earth. The why more than the how. It's function. And then he gives reproducing birds above and sea creatures below to fill sky and sea. That's day five. And then he gives reproducing land animals with image-bearing humans who exercise dominion and care over the earth as it cares for them. Days four, day five, day six. Now in this, what, what is fascinating to me, I'm going to go ahead and click to this, this next slide right here. You're going to see a pattern, right? Days one, two, and three are like these habitats. And four, five, and six are the inhabitants to those habitats, right? So there's a, there's a structure in this that not only is poetic, but even has this idea of like when they built the tabernacle. They build the thing, and then they consecrate items and bring them into the thing, and then from that, after that's all done, they summon God to come and dwell with that thing. So this is kind of the, the parallel model that you see. So instead of getting lost into, okay, how does this all work and how does the science work? It's just not trying to answer a science question. And part of this you can even see like, okay, day one is kind of the separation of dark and light, day and night, but we don't have a sun, moon, and stars till day four. And you're like, well, how do you have day and night without sun, moon, and stars? Day is sort of the governor of day and night. Genesis doesn't care about like scientific timelines. It's caring about consecration. Or the fact that plants are on day three, but you're not going to have photosynthesis till day four. If it's a science problem, it's a problem. But if it's in their mindset of consecration, this makes a ton of sense to an Israelite. 
And part of the reason it makes a ton of sense is because think about what the Israelites, again, have been doing for a long, long time. They've spent hundreds of years in Egypt building this stuff. They've seen countless times of decades, maybe even centuries, building a temple, a building, whatever, and then there's this little window of like consecration, inviting the deity Inviting the deity to come And you know the, the word Is to rest Inviting the deity to rest In the sacred space That has been established Which is way more about the why Than the how or how long Which then takes us to day seven It says thus The heavens and the earth were finished And all the hosts of them The hosts being days four, five, and six Heavens, earth, and everything else Being days one, two, and three with that, on the seventh day, God finished all of his work that he had done, and he rested. He rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because, as, because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. This is the account of the creations of the heavens and the earth. The first thing we kind of note is the stacking of sevens, right? There's seven days. There's seven pronouncements of good. He, seven Hebrew words make up the first sentence in the whole thing. It's seven, or seven Hebrew words in three different sentences for the last part when God rested. So there's all of this kind of harmony in there. Seven is really, really important. The other thing you see about the seventh day is the absence of evening and morning past and then the eighth day. In other words, day seven doesn't have an ending. The other days have endings, but this day has no ending. Like he's supposed to dwell there forever. And that's come to the third note. Why would there be rest for a God who cannot tire? Right? Now, if this was really about the creation of the cosmos, I guess after that much work, maybe God could be tired and our kid's cartoon would be right. God just needed to take a nap. But the Bible says God never slumbers. So this notion that we look at this and we primarily put over the top of it that God needed to take a break misses, again, the, the deeper, maybe, uh, temple establishment vision that's being communicated here, right? Because again, that's more probably the way that they're hearing this and reading this. That God is the capstone. That he is the why of the ultimate creation. And so again, they had lived their whole lives in Egypt seeing this pattern and seeing these temples made, these spaces made for deities that are not deities. They thought Pharaoh was a God. They thought the sun, moon, river was a God, everything else. They've, they've seen these limited visions. And now the God of Israel rolls in. He says, I know this all sounds familiar. I'm even going to borrow some of the familiar, familiar nature of this. But here's the crazy part of this whole thing. I've got a temple too. And it's way bigger. My temple's so big that everything you think is a God is just a part of my temple. I've hung that, done that, made that, and then I consecrated all of that. And I've set this in place, and I've set it in motion. Because you know what? At the end of all of it, what I want to do is I want to dwell with you. The other gods hate you. The other gods see you as slaves. The other gods are irritated by you. But I see you as good and very good. And I've given you dignity and value, and I see you as my image bearers, and I love you so much that I want to make a space to be with you, and now I'm going to come and be among you. I'm going to rest with you. I'm going to rest with you. Because that's what a deity does. He comes to rest. And so in that sense, kind of looking at our picture here, the seventh day rests atop days four, five, and six because it is God's own temple. 
but it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. Build me such a resting place. Didn't my hands make both the heavens and the earth? The answer is yes, and the reason why is because it's his temple. So he's a deity that comes to rest in the grandest temple of all. And he comes to rest among as opposed to apart or against. Which takes us kind of to the final point. Genesis 1 is a total reorientation of divine engagement and human value. This would be the most shocking thing the Israelites would hear in Genesis 1. The most shocking thing, right? Because if you thought the gods didn't like you, didn't want you, just used you as slave labor, disdained you, and were kind of frustrated at you, you'd be like, the gods are kind of mean. But then Israel's God rolls in, and he says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Not our slaves, but fellows with us. They will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth, all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them, not to be indentured servants, but to enjoy him, to enjoy his temple, to represent him and to know him. Verse 28, then God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply. The gods hated the multiplication. God's like, no, I want you to multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given you every green plant as food for all the wild animals and the birds of the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. So you see this thing of elevation of all the things that are in the created order, and then on top of that, you see that God's saying, I give you humans this environment. The gods said, that's our environment, you work it, so you can give us our grain sacrifices, our animal sacrifices, our human sacrifices. It's for us, it's not for you, and God's like, no, I made it for you, because God's just that invested and loving. And while the gods didn't like the humans, verse 31, God looked over everything that he had made, particularly humans at this point, and said that it was very, very good. See, this is just different. Similar, but different. Now, I can tell you, uh, within a chapter, good's going to go to bad. That'll be Sunday school story number two next week. But even when it goes bad, God is still good. And in this temple model, the, 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 the cosmos is still his temple, but there'll be sickness in the temple. But from that, what's the last book of the Old Testament say? The Lord will return to his temple. And we tend to just go, oh, the one in Israel that was like the, the Solomon's temple destroyed and then rebuilt you know, by, by the powers that be of Rome and everything else. And I, I think there's some truth to that, but there's a deeper truth that like, no, the Lord's going to reclaim everything that is his temple. He's going to reclaim the people of his temple. So a good God's gonna come into a bad system and come to his temple to be with his people to rescue his people from their plight. God never gives up on the project. He starts a project that he will finish. He starts a good project that will be made good again. And what I love about that, at least for us today, is the fact that today is Communion Sunday, right? It's kind of a, another commemorative a tribute, a remembrance of the fact that, hey, God made this whole thing, right? And God wants us to find our rest in him. Even the seventh day of rest became a Sabbath for the people of Israel because it was designed to cause them to stop, to reflect on the God who made all of this stuff and loved them and cared for them and wants to walk with them in life. And so for us, we go, man, that's who Jesus is for us. He comes into this world, comes into his temple, rescues and transforms 
who we are and what he is doing in this world. And so today, as we think about communion, I just want to encourage all of you to take a moment to just realize the profound nature of the same God that created the cosmos to be his temple and came to rest with his people is the guy that says, all right, now I'm going to put on human flesh, and I'm going to come as a servant. I'm going to come as a slave, in fact, and I'm going to serve them all with my death so that they can have life with me anew. That is a powerful thing to contemplate when we think about communion. And so right now, I want to invite the worship team to come out. And uh, as they're coming up here, um, I want to take a moment to pray, to settle our hearts for communion. It's going to be passed out. Just hold on to it, and then we'll all partake together at the end. But this is a, this is a powerful thing. And I'm going to say for maybe some of you that are either watching online or in the room, and you're like, man, I'm not a Christian. Uh, this hasn't, you know, been kind of my framework. But maybe you sense that that's the step you want to take today then that's a prayer for you. That's a prayer where you say, God, I, I, I realize that you made all of this for me to know you and follow you, and I neither know you nor have I followed you. Right? The Bible calls that sin, just going our way, crossing a line. We all do it. We're all good at it. And God's like, but I still love you, and I want to rescue you anyway. I want to save you. I want to give you a life that you don't realize you can have. Life is better with Jesus, and that's kind of what this whole thing's about. And so for you, if you're like, I want to know this, Jesus. I want to become a Christian. I want to follow God in the way that I was meant to. You just simply say, God, forgive me. Forgive me for what I have done or how I've avoided or how I've chosen things that are contrary to you. Step into my life. Forgive my sins. Make me complete so I might live life with you and realize that life is better with you. You make that your prayer your way. We would love to know about that, right? We have an app that has a tile in there that you can click and say, I made that decision, or we have a phone number that you can text to and say, hey, I decided to follow Jesus today. And if you made that your prayer or you're making it right now, the other thing is when this plate comes by, you can be a part of our communion with us. Because communion is, again, this remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. He called himself a temple that was destroyed and three days later was risen so that we could find life in his temple, right? This temple language is all throughout the Bible. But it comes back to because you can find rest with God, because God rests among you. It's all about our relationship with him being restored. So right now I'm going to go and pray for our communion, and then we're going to go ahead and pass the elements out and partake together. Jesus, I thank you, in some ways for hard stuff, like going through Genesis 1 and, and trying to understand how they may have viewed this is hard stuff. But at the end, what we see is the value of you value us, you wanted to be with us, you long for us to be with you, and you've made ways to make that possible. We thank you for that. So even as we take communion, it's the, the, the pinnacle of temple, temple destroyed, temple restored, so that we might have union with you and find our rest in you. We thank you, Jesus, for such a great grace and sacrifice and your kind of good name. Amen.